do have moments of uh, looking forward to the end of Corinthians. <laughs> when everybody's laughing during the reading, there's not much hope for the preacher, is there, really? So, 1 Corinthians 11. Quite tempted to just do the second half. <laughs> but you know me, I like a challenge. So, let's remember for a moment, shall we? Especially those of you that haven't followed through this series with us that we're talking about. The church in Corinth. It's a embryonic church really it's it's only been established for a matter of maybe 18 months a few years and uh, it's a new church in a very challenging cultural context so mixed Greeks Romans and Jewish background people there that when Paul is writing it's somewhat observation it's a letter but we know that there were more than two letters to the Corinthians, so there's the other letters, which frankly it would be really useful to have had, that will make sense of it because just like any pile of communication, if you miss out a few of the letters, you're not quite sure whether he's reporting or he's quoting back to them something that they have said or he's instructing them or he's commenting on a story or example that they've given to him. But any which way, the story of 1 Corinthians, there's that Paul at various points is offering to them some helpful correctives to keep them on course in their distinctiveness, to help them to work out what their Christ-like identity looks like in their own culture, to help them to work out what does freedom in Christ really look like and how does that impact our behavior. So, are we ready? Verse 2, Paul starts in verse 2, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. But look over to verse 17 for me, will you? In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Has he really changed his mind in 16 verses? Sorry, 15. Is he praising them? Or is he not praising them? Is this one of those times again where we need to hear Paul's tone of voice? So is this commendation or is this sarcasm? I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding on to the teachings and passing them on. No. Paul has been with them for 18 months. He wants them to remember the things that he said he wants them to hold on to his teachings and he wants them to pass on things to the next generation. And the word traditions for us often uh, carries a lot of negative connotations. For tradition, read boring. But actually traditions are just simply, literally, those things we pass on and hand on. And if it was important then, it is also important now. When If you ever go into schools and do assemblies and you say to kids, what's Easter all about? What, is it about chocolate eggs? What's Christmas about? It's about presents. That even the very fundamental things of our faith are getting dissipated through our culture. 
And we need to be those who know what it is that we're holding on to and we pass those things on to those who come behind us. That is particularly important when a church is being planted in a new context or culture where the Christian faith hasn't had much impact, impact but is increasingly true in our unchristianized culture today. So we're going to be continuing some of the themes that Phil mentioned two weeks ago. See, I was listening. Yeah. One of the things that he commented on was this. He says, there's no such thing as casual worship. I know he said that because I wrote it down. There's no such thing as casual worship. And that's really what Paul is talking about in these next few chapters, that there's no such thing as casual worship. I want to make it clear that this isn't so much a comment about style, but about heart. It's not really about whether we sit in our suits and have a very ordered form of service, or whether we come more like we are and have a more relaxed style of worship. It's really about what's going on in our hearts. In our hearts, are we casual towards the way that we gather together to worship God? Our style may or may not reflect what is going on in our hearts. Jesus, you remember, called the Pharisees whitewashed sepulchres. He was always really good at being subtle about such things. He says you do everything right. You look right on the outside. You go through the motions, but inside you're rotten to the core and you stink. Remember what I said about him being subtle? How do we worship well together? How do we honour one another as we worship? And how do we honour the Lord? All these things are reflected in this chapter and in the following chapters. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Surely, it's really a lot of controversy over scarves and hairstyles. Is that it? Shall we move on? Shall we leave it there? Isn't that what it says? Women should wear scarves and have long hair, and men should have short hair and not wear scarves, moving swiftly on. Is that not what it's about? Well, a few things. First of all, these are difficult verses. Most preachers have on their shelves a book called Difficult Passages in the Bible. It's one of them. It has a very clear local context of which we don't fully know all the details. It also has a canonical context, and we always need to understand difficult passages in the light of less difficult passages. That's always the right way to do things. And it clearly picks up some very specific issues in the Corinthian church, which we don't really know anything about. So apart from that, it's really dead easy from here on in. That's the background. So let's talk about one or two things. First of all, we need to have a brief conversation about culture. In first century Greece, men and women wore quite similar things. Fundamentally, it was a sheet that you tied around the middle. Women wore a calamar, which was a covering that covered the hair. It wasn't a veil. It was a covering that just covered the hair. Men didn't wear one of those. Women who didn't wear a calamar were often... High-class mistresses, slaves, or it was used as a punishment for adulteresses, possibly worn by sacred prostitutes 
and may have been worn by those in mourning. So if you weren't wearing a covering, you were assumed to be part of one of those groups of people. The Jews, on the other hand, in the worship space and the synagogue were kept separate from one another. So um, we'll be coming on to this in a couple of weeks' time. So the men sat on the ground floor and the women sat on the balcony. In Judaism, the men have their heads covered and the women don't. See how confusing this is? Paul tells the Jewish men to pray with their heads uncovered. So that's a little bit about culture. I think I read something about Rome, but I can't remember what that was. We also need to have a conversation about kephale. The word kephale is mentioned 57 times in the New Testament. 50 of them refer to the literal head of a person or animal. So the word kephale simply means head, and 50 times just refers literally to the head. For those of you who are good at maths, that leaves seven times when we have to ask the question, what does kephale mean here? What does it mean in this context? Well, we quite often use it for chief or ruler, the head of an organization, the boss. But there's very little evidence to suggest that it was used in that way in Paul's day. That's a more modern understanding of the word head. Perhaps we also use it to mean priority. Priority meaning superior rank. But if Paul was using it in that context, why did he not use the word kurios, which means lord, if he really wanted to imply the sense of rank, of superiority, and he doesn't do that? The other meaning for the word is this, source. As in source of a river, that kind of source. And almost all authorities agree that in that time, the heart was considered the source of all thought and emotion. It has priority in that regard, not the head. The head was the source of life. And so it makes best sense, really, in this as well as many other passages where it's used for us to understand it as source, as the source of life. Let me read to you a few Words from the New Bible Dictionary, which is clearly wiser than me. It says here, The head is not regarded as the seat of the intellect, but the source of life. When Christ is spoken of as the head of his body, the church, the head of every man, of the entire universe, and of every cosmic power, and when man is spoken of as the head of the woman, the basic meaning of head as the source of all life and energy is predominant. So maybe it helps us to understand this passage a little bit more if we think of it like that. So let's have another conversation, this time a conversation about creation. In verse 3, now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Are we talking about a chain of command? Are we talking about a hierarchy? Christ, man, woman, God, or are we here talking about three couplets illustrating some point about source or origin? That Christ is the source of man, man is the source literally in terms of creation of woman, and that God is the source of Christ in that sense. And there's many complexities around all of that I've just said in those last two sentences. What do we understand here? I'm going to put all these up because I'm rambling on and I don't think it's in order. 
So if we go back a minute, because our divisions in our chapters aren't very helpful sometimes, to verse 31 of chapter 10. Paul says this, so whenever, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example, as I follow the example of Christ. So then he goes on to talk about all these ways in which we worship together. So his concern is the glory of God and the testimony of the church to unbelievers. There is no other religion that offers the same level of women's freedom that Christianity offers. The way that Jesus dealt with women, spoke to them, taught them, encouraged them, was completely radical in his day and culture. And Paul is given a properly bad press for the things that he says. But actually, this passage is about women praying and prophesying in the church. And that is radical. There is no other religion that offers so much freedom. And in Paul's day, the gospel was freeing people from appalling restrictions. And they needed to be careful in the way that they used that freedom so as not to hinder the gospel where they were. Verse 11, after he said all that stuff that Martin was challenged to read, says, In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. So in the end, it's all kind of circular, isn't it? So wherever we start in our understanding of things, in the end, it's all from God. He talks about the nature of things. Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? Right, I'm going to, I'm going to keep you engaged. Please put your hand up if you're a man who has ever had long hair. Stand up, stand up. <laughs> That's really quite funny. <laughs> well, according to this, you're a disgrace, so sit yourselves down. <laughs> Please stand up if you're a woman and you have or have ever had long hair. How glorious is that? <laughs> you may sit down. <laughs> you know, the nature of things is such a weird thing to say, isn't it? It's such a strange thing to say. You know, different cultures, different parts of the body are a, a source of shame or disgrace than in other places. So in Corinth the women needed to cover their hair because otherwise they were understood to be part of a group of people that it wasn't helpful for new believers in Christ to be part of. But in parts of East Asia, it's the feet that are a disgrace. And I would have all sorts of issues because I almost always have bare feet in the summer. And that would be disgraceful. And if I was in a church there, I would have to cover my feet. But it would be fine if I had my head uncovered. So it's all around the nature of things, 
Maybe not a forever, but in the context where you are. What is the nature of things? What will bring you good repute or bad repute within your context? And then we have verse 10. Even whilst Martin was doing the reading, people were saying, what's that all about? For this reason, and because of the angels, the women ought to have a sign of authority on her head. It's clear. Well, let's make a couple of things clear. The sign of authority is the word exousia, which literally means authority. So we are not talking about veils or hats or scarves or anything else. It literally just says authority. The given authority the given authority in this context to pray and to prophesy. Do we not all need to do things under authority? There's not a sense in which any of us are mavericks. When Phil leads this morning, he is under authority. When I preach, I am under authority. When someone comes, that's just how it works. We are under authority. And there was the understanding that the angels were part of the community at worship. Well, I don't have an issue with that. That the angels were there. They saw what was going on. And the misuse or abuse of freedom, the disgrace to the gospel which Jesus died for, that could never be right. So because of the angels, as well as under authority. And as I've already said, the climax of the argument is around equality and mutual dependence on each other in mutual submission to God. Let me read you one more thing. It's in old-fashioned writing, all right? It's F.F. F. Bruce, he's a very esteemed commentator. Phil's going, oh, he's good. <laughs> there is nothing frivolous about such an appeal to public conventions and seemliness. To be followers of the crucified Jesus was in itself unconventional enough but needless breaches of convention were to be discouraged. A few decades later, if not as early as this, people were prepared to believe the most scandalous rumours of what went on at Christian meetings. Unnecessary breaches of customary propriety would be regarded as confirmation of such rumours. It was far better to give the lie to them by scrupulous maintenance of social decorum. Though the application of the principle may vary widely, the principle itself remains valid, especially where the public reputation of the believing community is likely to depend on such externalities. Did you follow that? The Christian community was accused of being cannibals for eating the body and the blood of Jesus. So how easy was it for the community to be misrepresented, for freedom to be over-abused? and for people to get the wrong idea, and what was at stake was the gospel of Christ. So, here's my summary. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying, there is order in God's creation. There is order. We may interpret it somewhat slightly differently from each other. That's fine. There is order in God's creation. There is a right way to express freedom. So freedom doesn't just mean do whatever you want to, wherever you want to, however you want to. There's a right way to express the freedom we've been given. Honouring men and women appropriately is part of our worship. And I think we try to do that in this church, to honour each other, the strengths that we bring, the things that we are involved in, to honour each other appropriately. Men and women should both pray and prophesy in a way which is honouring to the Lord. So if you want a challenge from this, everybody... It's that you should pray and prophesy. 
Don't worry about whether you've got your head covered or not. You need to pray and prophesy. That's the challenge. What is Paul not saying? Paul is not saying that women are second-class citizens. He is also not saying all women for all time must wear hats. Bridget was at the first service, and just for me, she was coming in. We were talking about this. She said, oh, I left a church over this issue once. Bridget. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, Bridget worked in uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo and in Zambia and another, one or two of the other countries in, in Africa as well. She said, yeah, I left a church over this issue because they made wearing a head covering a condition of salvation. So there you go. They are not saying, Paul is not saying all women must have long hair. I mean, some women's hair just doesn't grow long, does it? And all men must have short hair. So how does this apply to us? All of us are under authority. All of us need to use our freedom in Christ in a way that honours God and his people. And our expression of worship, that really means about how we meet together, must be appropriate so as to not deflect people from the gospel. Okay, are we all happy? Can we move on? Can I not talk about head coverings anymore? So continuing, though, in this same idea of how people are, how community is when it meets together, Paul goes on to talk about worshipping around the table. And here he says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. It's not the best uh, school report, is it, really? Was this really the Lord's Supper? Was it really? Because he says, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And he says, I, I believe that because maybe he saw the beginnings of those things even when he was there with them. I hear that there's divisions among you. How many churches over time have been decimated by division, by breaking up, by separating over major and minor, often minor, issues. I hear that there's divisions among you. No doubt there have to be, hear his tone here, no doubt there have to be divisions among you to show which of you have God's approval. It's like you're making these divisions in order that you can have grouping so some of you can think you're better than other people. Isn't that what divisions always do? Isn't that what's going on in our nation that some of us basically think that we're better than the other people? because they think they're better than us as well, so that doesn't work so well. Superiority and pride that creeps in. I'm right, my way is best. I know what's right, I know what's best. And then he explains a bit more. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. So there's, there's greed creeping in. Because as they met for the Lord's Supper, it wasn't how we tend to do it. They met together, they all brought their food, and they put it out there to share. Everyone had everything in common. But some people were getting there first, and they were like making sure that they got the smoked salmon sandwiches and left the others if they were lucky. Greedy, 
selfish, inconsiderate. So some of you are even, even getting drunk. Well, you'd struggle to get drunk on our communion wine. You're just turning up and just treating it with contempt. This isn't the Lord's Supper. This is just a kind of a free-for-all. How can this be worship? And you're humiliating those who are poorer than you. It's, a, it's as if we, we did this one week, and some of you turn up with your Harrods hampers, you know, with your caviar and uh, your smoked salmon and cream cheese and chive, carefully cut sandwiches, and champagne. And then, and then there's some of us, and we've got slightly dog-eared cheese sandwiches and a bottle of value Morrison's orange squash. And those people with the Harrods ha- hampers, instead of sharing, are saying, look at us, we're so important, we're so great, we're wonderful, much better than you, look at what you've got. And that was creeping into the church and making a mockery of the fact that they were one community in Christ together as they shared the Lord's Supper. So what is the Lord's Supper? It's about imitating Jesus, isn't it? Not just about imitating him on that last supper when we read those familiar words that he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup. But remembering that, that Jesus was at the table with both his friends and his enemy. That Jesus shared tables with everybody more often than not, the poor and the marginalized, the excluded, Jesus ate with them. And that Jesus told stories of parables, of feasts, where those who were invited didn't come and those who weren't invited did come. And the poor and the destitute and the homeless and those who were outside the parameters of nice society were included. And so as we share fellowship together, of which communion is a small part, are we like that, imitating Jesus? We remember him, that he is the one who's broken down the walls that divide us. He is the one who's brought unity. The church is one of the most amazing places in the whole of society for the unity of age, of class, to use that word, of ethnicity, of background. It it is the church because it's Jesus, because that's what Jesus does. And that as we meet around the table, which is that special moment, it's that place where he has broken down all the dividing walls and he's brought us together on the same terms on our knees at the foot of the cross. That's where we come together, whoever we are. Proclaiming his death. Communion is all about Jesus laying down his life and all that they are doing is is lifting up their lives, is preserving theirs, is holding on to their status. As we share bread and wine, We remember that we follow him who laid down his life for us, whose body was broken, whose blood was shed because of his love for us. 
And as we do it, and this is why I can't stand it when it gets too serious, <laughs> we anticipate the future. There is nothing more hopeful than sharing bread and wine together. Because it, it reminds us that we're saved and forgiven and free, but it also reminds us that we have a destiny, that we have a, a place of hope for the future, a place where we'll share that again with him in heaven forever. Some of you were at Margaret Johnston's funeral on, on Tuesday afternoon, and it was just wonderful. It, it, it was sad. Of course it was sad, but it was also wonderful because, because of that hope, because of Jesus, because one day there'll be Margaret serving us tea in heaven. I know she will be. She did it all her life on earth. I'm sure she's going to do it in heaven. We have hope, hope to do this again together. And as we do it, we recognize the body of the Lord. This is deliberately ambiguous. Are we recognizing the body of Jesus? Well, of course we are. Are we recognizing the body of the Lord, the church? Yes, we are doing that too. This is not an individual thing. Now, of course, you can take it individually, but it's not an individual thing. It's a community thing. How do we participate? Because the agape supper and what we now call bread and wine or communion or the Eucharist or the Mass have become very separated from each other, haven't they, in our experience? We rarely have a big meal together and then do communion, although occasionally we do, but that's not normal. It's become separated from our normal worship. You know, in, in a lot of nonconformist churches for many years, you had the service and then, and then you had the communion extra, like another service, and only the communicant members could stay and everybody else had to go home. I mean, that's like not separating people up at all, is it? become exclusive it's become very stylized I mean even in our context where we're not so much like that it's still stylized isn't it some places more so how do we participate not much more to go people <laughs> says we need to examine ourselves we need to think about ourselves now the hard thing about this is the people who are most sensitive take this really really seriously and feel so convicted about stuff that's happened in their lives, often, they end up not sharing in the communion. And the people who are more stubborn probably don't think about it a whole lot, and it's actually how Jesus looks at us, isn't it? And he always looks at us with love, and he always looks at us with forgiveness. So anything we see in ourselves and we bring to him, he deals with that. And we come on the basis of the cross of Christ, not anything else that we can ever do. We are aware not just of ourselves, but of the whole. And I'm sure there's probably not one single person here who on occasion hasn't taken communion because they've thought, I need to sort that relationship out first. I, I, I'm, not in, I'm not in a good place with other people in the body of Christ here or elsewhere. And I need to sort that out first. And I, and I don't want to take it today because I resolve to sort that out first because we've, we've thought about more than just ourselves in that. And sometimes that's the right thing to do. We need to honour Jesus. 
We need to honour the body of Christ. And we need to do it with appropriate self-discipline and concern for other people. Paul writes here, doesn't he, some really tough words. Anyone who eats and drinks without recognising the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. I don't think he means that they were bored. He says that. Because some of you in this in Corinth have been so casual, so careless, so greedy, so thinking about yourself, so without concern for other people, that actually, because you haven't judged yourself, God's judgment has come on you. That's, that's pretty tough, isn't it? Again, those of you who are sensitive will be going, oh, maybe I should never ever take it. Remember that that's balanced by the grace of God. There has to be both of those things, that we examine ourselves and then we rely and trust on his grace in our lives. So, finally. <laughs> this chapter and others to follow remind us that worship must be considered and not casual, but that that's a matter of our hearts, not our clothing or our style. Worship must be inclusive and not exclusive. That as much as possible, we need to try and make sure people feel welcome, encouraged, included. Worship must honour God and not just please us. Now, that's the one where it actually gets us every time, doesn't it? Worship must honour God. So sometimes it doesn't please us, does it? Sometimes I think, oh, I don't like this song. I don't, I don't, I don't really like this book, though. It's actually utterly irrelevant. If it's honouring God, it is utterly irrelevant. What I think at that point. And worship is an expression of our position in Christ and not simply an expression of our personality. And our position in Christ is unchanging. It's unchanging. We are free, we are forgiven, we are loved, we are accepted, we belong we receive his grace and mercy. Our position in Christ is unchanging. On some days I feel great. On some days I feel rubbish. Some days I feel like engaging with worship. On some days I don't. It's not defined by that. It's defined by the position that I have in Jesus Christ. And that is unchanging. It's over. 